0: As we open God's word, let's ask him. Our Father, you are eternal God, the source of wisdom and knowledge. Give us spirit of wisdom and of revelation, the knowledge of Christ. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we may know what is the hope to which we have been called. May you reveal yourself to us, for we can only know you if you give yourself to be known. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Our scripture reading is from John chapter four, John chapter four verses one to 30, where <coughs> this evening, and this is the scene where uh, Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman. Um, and the title of my message is, "Never thirst again. Never thirst again." And so beloved, hear now the word of God. as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just when his disciples came back, they marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, who do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Our passage for this evening is a well-known scene between Jesus and a Samaritan woman at a well. And Jesus has had many encounters with different individuals and groups throughout his earthly ministry. And some encounters were more public while others were more private. And it's always really fascinating how there's no, uh, there's no one like Jesus that can make a profound impact to a wide variety of people by the power of his word and deed. That could actually make people come alive. That could actually raise people from the dead and how he engages, engages with people is never a cookie-cutter, uh, one-size-fits approach, isn't it? It's true that some of his interactions resulted in really further hardening of the heart, while others couldn't help but be transformed by the presence and power of Jesus. And so the central truth that we can learn from Jesus' personal encounter with the Samaritan woman is is this, that since Jesus is zealous to be the life-giving source for eternal life and renewal, our lives will bear the fruit and joy of true worship. Repeat that, since Jesus is zealous to be the life-giving source for eternal life and renewal... Our lives will bear the fruit and joy of true worship. And how could we see this truth unfold in our passage? Well, there are three things we can think about. First, he meets us in our brokenness. Second, he offers us our healing need. And finally, he transforms us for true worship. He meets us in our our brokenness. He offers us our healing need. And finally, he transforms us for true worship. And first, he meets us in our brokenness. And we see that truth in Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. And we see that as Jesus was heading north uh, to Galilee, instead of taking the longer route to avoid Samaria, he travels uh, with his disciples through Samaria, right? Because uh, your typical first century Jew hated the Samaritans. And instead of going through Samaria, uh, Jews would have taken the longer route to avoid Samaria, and then instead they go around it if they were traveling. And yet, what does Jesus do? He travels through Samaria for a divine purpose. He doesn't allow the social pressures of the world to extinguish his zeal for the lost. And it's in our passage that we see that he stops at Jacob's well for a break. It's noontime. He's hot and sweaty and very thirsty. And so when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, he asked her, Give me a drink. But instead of agreeing, she immediately had her guard up. She couldn't believe what she was hearing. It's like, like, wait, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Like, are you crazy? Like, you shouldn't even be talking to me. And so she found that it was very absurd for Jesus to even speak to her. And I think here we can see uh, two realities of the brokenness we all face, don't we? First, he meets the woman in her broken world, and then second, he meets her in her broken condition. And yet, the amazing truth about Jesus is that no matter how broken our world is, or how broken our condition is, Jesus crosses those barriers to enter our dark world, doesn't he? And perhaps this encounter May not be a surprise to us today, but in the first century, this would have been countercultural to have such casual conversation between a Jew and a Samaritan. Um, that's the comment that we see John makes in verse nine: that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And so this was the broken world they lived in. To the Jews, a Samaritan is like code name for outcast, unclean, and despised. And without going too much into the background, if you remember, the Jews and the Samaritans have this deep-rooted animosity that uh, go back centuries during the northern and the southern split of Israel, right? The the Samaritans in the north um, became this mixed uh, Jewish-Gentile people when the Assyrians uh, brought in the Gentiles, Uh, that when the Gentiles came, they intermarried with the Israelites in Samaria, which at that time was prohibited in national Israel uh, because intermarrying actually made things worse uh, for Israel's worship, when Israel's worship got mixed with the idol worship of the Gentiles. And so now, centuries later, Jesus was born into this society. Um, he was born into this society with these existing tensions between the Samaritans and the purebred Jews. Um, But not only was this woman a despised Samaritan by the Jewish community, uh, but the fact that she was a woman in the first century meant that she was considered uh, a second-rate citizen compared to a male. And so it would have been countercultural for a rabbi like Jesus to be having this casual conversation uh, with the woman alone at noon in public, especially with the Samaritan. And so before we think that we were too far removed from the cultural uh, pressures of the first century, uh, I think we too could face the same challenges and biases when God places people in our lives that are different from us, right? Perhaps in color or culture or language or dress or even political leanings. You know, we could become too comfortable uh, with people who are like us, who think like us, who talk like us, that we avoid people different from us. We avoid uh, them because we want to avoid maybe the potential awkwardness or fear of not knowing what to say. But Jesus is different. He was willing to cross the social, economic, religious, and ethnic boundaries of his days so that the good news is available to all people. So that his compassion to reach sinners would be the same compassion that he instills in all of us. Especially when God places people in our lives who need his living water, who need his gospel. And I know that there's always wisdom on how we relate with people different from us, but I think the more that we realize the depth of God's grace through Christ in our lives, the more we'll learn that the boundaries that man puts up, that we put up, don't remain obstacles but become opportunities to show compassion and to point others to the living water that we ourselves have mercifully received. But not only did Jesus enter the broken world of this woman, he also met her in her broken condition because Jesus sees what no one else sees. He sees the depth of our spiritual brokenness, the depth of our spiritual emptiness. And so there was nothing that this woman could hide from Jesus. And we were given insight that Jesus knew everything about her. Right? She's had five marriages, and the uh, person that she's living with is not her husband. And so something that, something's not right. There's been a lot of pain, wrong decisions, regret, shame, misplaced trust in her life. And perhaps she's haunted by the public shame of her neighbors, that she makes the walk alone every day, to this well, at this particular time where no one's around, clearly she was thirsty. But she was thirsting for, she was thirsting for are the wrong things in life, which can never quench her thirst for true happiness. And beloved, isn't that our reality too? Because we could all find ourselves Like the Samaritan woman pursuing and and placing our trust in the things that aren't ultimate in life, isn't it? And this is why we can appreciate, really, the second truth, that wonderful truth that Jesus offers, which is he offers us our healing need. He offers us our healing need because he meets us in our brokenness, both in our broken world and in our broken condition. He knows exactly what we need for us to be healed and to quench our deepest thirst. For Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, he will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So beloved, the, the living water that Jesus offers is spiritual and eternal, not physical and temporal, And yet the spiritual reality is misunderstood by this woman, the same way that Nicodemus misunderstood the new birth, that the need to be born again from above isn't physical, but it's spiritual. It's heavenly. And it's this spiritual language that still challenges people to trust in the only one who can save them, doesn't it? The woman was still confused, and she asked several times, asking, Sir, Where is this living water that you're talking about? Or, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. In other words, she was still fixated on the things that could only satisfy temporarily. And the challenge is that it's impossible to convince the sinful heart to be cured without the God who changes hearts especially when the heart doesn't realize the need to be cured. And I know uh, that feeling because as a nurse for many years, I've had uh, tough conversations with patients and families regarding certain treatments and procedures. And I understand that in medicine, right, there are several options. But what if, as a patient, you don't have that many options? You only have one option. And what if your condition is so life-threatening that if you don't undergo this treatment now, you will lose your life? Like you wish you had more time to think it through, but it's not that easy. Especially when you fear what may or what may not happen. And yet the amazing truth about God's word is that it doesn't leave us guessing, doesn't it? It doesn't instill fear or confusion, but rather his living word gives us a complete confidence in what God has said, in what God has accomplished, in what God is doing. That he redeems us in Christ, he removes our guilty fears, and creates in us resurrection life by the Spirit. So that now, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, who accurately reveals the diagnosis of our hearts, who accurately prescribes the perfect cure that saves us and renews us. But at this point in the conversation, the woman was still confused, oblivious to the greatest gift of all, the only cure in Jesus who stoops down so gently and so lowly to get to her heart. And yet Jesus doesn't give up. He was patient and persistent, that he needed to go deeper into her soul. He commands her in verse 16, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And so when she heard this, what was her response? Well, we see that instead of allowing Jesus to probe any deeper into her personal life, it appears that she avoids the conversation. And that's true for us, isn't it? Just like any one of us would feel threatened that our private lives are being exposed. But the great physician, the great physician had a purpose because she needed to see that x-ray result. She needed to see the symptoms of her cancer that has now metastasized. But we see that even though Jesus reveals her devastating results, she doesn't want to deal with it. She chooses to talk about something else, right? Something she thinks is totally unrelated and decides to talk about worship, right? She changes the subject. She talks about worship. She responds in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now I find it interesting that in some of Jesus' encounters, when, um, when he talks to individuals, some individuals would raise questions or make comments, most of the, but most of the time, notice that Jesus doesn't give them the answer that they want to hear right sometimes jesus drives a conversation in a totally different direction like when nicodemus comes to jesus with his doctor of theology degrees right to talk about theology but then we re- we see there that he has really no idea how to make sense of the new birth right and what it means to be born again but jesus in this case entertains the woman's concern about worship And it's amazing how he'll talk about worship, but then we see him talk about a new kind of worship, right? He'll slowly put the pieces together in her mind so that she may realize the connection between her deepest need for a cure and her need to be a true worshiper. And so finally, that's what we see in our last point, that he transforms us for true worship. He transforms us for true worship. In verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, part of the animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews is that the Samaritans didn't worship at the temple in Jerusalem, right? Which was supposed to be the center of worship for national Israel. Because the Lord commanded national Israel to have one temple and one temple only. Um, But in Israel's history, when the kings in the north prohibited the Samaritans to travel to Jerusalem, instead they say, hey, let's build our own temple right here on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. So you don't have to go to Jerusalem. And so that's what happened. And even though later that temple on Mount Gerizim was destroyed in 130 BC before the time of Jesus, still the Samaritans, like this Samaritan woman, still had a deep attachment to this mountain because perhaps that was the place where her deepest longings for spiritual renewal could be expressed. Perhaps it was on that mountain where it was the only place she thinks she could find refuge to pray And seek forgiveness for her sins. But she always wonders why she never felt forgiven. Because no matter how much she thought she was worshipping the one true God. For some reason she always felt this ongoing um, spiritual emptiness. And so the amazing truth about Jesus is that he knows all about this woman's deepest longings. He is the only one who could reveal to her why her worship always felt empty. And perhaps it's no different than our own situation today, isn't it? Because people from all walks of life have this worship-oriented heart, whether they admit it or not. The only difference is what and how you worship. Because the sinful flesh, the devil, and the world are always going to find ways to fill that worship void. Whether it's money, sex, or fame, status, wealth, and even the things that may seem good under the umbrella of creation, which could all claim to be your ultimate hope in life. And yet, by the grace of God, our Lord Jesus Christ reveals to us the true place of worship because the true place of worship is found in our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is our true temple, right? He is the one who could recreate our spiritually oriented hearts to worship in spirit and truth. And Jesus finally reveals to the Samaritan woman in verse 23 But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so you see, beloved, true worship is spiritual, and it's grounded upon the truth. And that truth is found only in our Lord Jesus Christ, who gives us his living waters to eternal life. So that now being united to Christ by the Holy Spirit, we could truly worship the Father. We could truly worship him who offers us his son, forgiveness. That in his son we have forgiveness, righteousness, justification, sanctification, and glorification right now. And so as she ponders all of what he had just said, we can imagine her heart was burning As she realizes that Jesus was more than a prophet, but rather her Lord and Savior who not only heals her soul, but transforms her to be the true worshiper that the Father seeks. She says, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. But in verse 6, Jesus said to her, Ego eimi. Or, I am the one speaking to you. Or, I who speak to you am he. For it's no doubt that she would have recognized that covenantal title, the I am, who is the same covenant Lord in Exodus who promised, I am the Lord, I will deliver you. So, beloved, isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful that we have a covenant-keeping God who meets us in our brokenness, who heals us and creates us to be true worshipers who can now worship the father in spirit and truth and so beloved in closing as we think about our savior who offers his living water for eternal life we should ask ourselves how are you quenching your thirst how are you quenching your thirst where are you placing your trust today Because no matter where you're at in life, the truth is you are not so broken that God cannot renew you. You are not too complicated or complex that God cannot solve. Because it's precisely broken people whom God brings to realize their spiritual emptiness, their spiritual bankruptcy that Jesus is excited and passionate to give you his living water. So that no matter what your past is, no matter who you are and where you're at in life, you can be comforted, renewed, and strengthened once again by the one who truly cares for you. Because as one recent book by Dane Orland describes him, he is indeed gentle and lowly towards those who are suffering, towards sinners, towards the downcasts, in order to lift them up once again. Beloved, may you rest in his refreshment that we all need in Christ today, forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have extended your mercy upon us poor sinners through your Son, and that you saw that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, we see ourselves in the Samaritan woman, how your Son is patient with us, when we don't see or acknowledge the gift of his living waters. Help us to yearn for its eternal refreshment and cleansing power, especially when we're often weak. Guide us and give us the strength as we navigate this world with all its challenges, illnesses, temptation, and sin that we often face. Father, keep us guarded from the evil one. Grant us more of your spirit's renewing grace as he unites us more and more to your son. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.